Wait and for I would like to introduce our guest speaker, Mr. John Bradshaw. Insanity. 
I had won $500 on a machine and put 300 of it back in another one and violated all my reasoning and logic and everything, the whole plan. I had this wonderful plan. And, uh, and uh, you know, as I dumped that money in that machine, I knew I was crazy. You know, I, I knew I was crazy. I was saying, this is crazy. And I kept doing it. And if that isn't a great analogy, reminder about drinking, where I continually tried to solve problems caused by drinking by drinking. That's the insanity. And it's as insane as anything that, you know, any human being can do. It's to continue to think that this chemical will solve the problem. And therefore, if I have this chemical in my being that somehow everything's going to be okay, or, or it isn't the chemical, it's everything else. It's my old man, it's my old lady, it's my wife, it's my boss, it's my husband, it's the communist. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people come up with some pretty unimaginative shit to blame it on. But, uh, you know, um, but it's never me. It's always somebody else. And that, that's part of the illness also. Blaming is part of the illness. Uh, in this workshop we're going to do, forgiveness and dealing with resentments, to me, are the core of the healing. And uh, it took me months to even realize I had resentments. My sponsor, I remember sitting out in the front of my house, and he said, well, how'd you like that meeting tonight on resentments? I said, oh, I was good. I said, I don't have any resentments. And I thought I meant that. I thought that was just as honest as anything I could say. I didn't have any resentments. And Lord, as the months unfolded, I, I, I realized that I, I not only had I was a resentment. <laughs> I was a walking, a, a ball of rage. But I was a passive-aggressive rage. I was gentle on the outside, but enraged, enraged on the inside enraged is the right word the rage is all inside it's all turned inward now there were a lot of reasons for that rage um, not good ones particularly not ones that would justify a life of killing yourself over but my daddy was an alcoholic my daddy wasn't there ever when i needed him growing up uh although he bore me and uh you know there's enough gratitude for that and uh you know sunday evening for those of you going to be doing that with us what i'm going to suggest to you is that finally with your resentment you you get to an emotional point where you can say my father was perfect he was the most perfect one for me i couldn't be who i am now had i not had an alcoholic father who was never there when i needed him <laughs> i know that sounds like a heavy trip and uh, you know and I, I definitely don't want anybody to say that just to be saying it i, I mean to transform those feelings in such a way that I understand that I chose my life and I chose my responses to him and that I am who I am because of him and in spite of him that it was because I didn't have anybody around that I had to do certain things for myself I had to learn to rely on myself now in my own childhood the feeling when I did my fourth step inventory the thing that I went back to over and over and over again thank you was fear fear I, I can as far back as i can remember fear and if you look at that chapter in the big book the inventory chapter on the inventory steps in every case in parenthesis it'll have fear there that basically my character defect was fear now that is not a defect that you stand in your crib at birth and say oh god i hope that by the time i'm 11 i'm scared shitless of everything Certainly nobody does that. 
But by 11, I can remember being scared of everything, scared of everybody, living in chronic anxiety, what I call chronic anxiety, because my mama had to support us three kids on $30 a week. She never worked in her life. My daddy started his drinking and, run, and leaving home, so she went to work. She was filled with anxiety. She laid her anxiety on us. And so the whole environment I was brought up in was one of, one of scarcity. There was never enough. There was never enough money. There wasn't enough love that you always, I was always insecure. So how it was, was I lived in ego for 30 years. And it's important to understand this for me anyway, that ego is not something bad, necessarily. Ego is something essential to survival. Uh, if you think of a black frame, a screen that is totally black, and call that whole screen human consciousness, and think of a, of a flashlight beam right in the center of it. The flashlight beam is ego. It is a very limited kind of consciousness that has to do with survival. When you are insecure and fearful and threatened, the part of us that is working to survive is ego. So ego always has to do with the lower order needs food, clothing, shelter, stroke, security, enough love. And so the more insecure one is, the more one is going to live in ego, which is why turning one's life over to a higher power is so powerful in taking you out of ego, which is exactly what the steps, as I understand them, are about. So I lived, how it was, is I lived in ego. I lived tense, anxious, uptight, muscles like this, repressed. I, I grew up in a good, very good Catholic family, very good people, and they told me that certain feelings were mortal sins like anger. Anger was one of the seven deadly sins, and a very well-meaning Irish Catholic nun passed a picture of a cancerous lung around in the third grade and said, that's what your soul looks like under mortal sin. So, man, if you had any smarts at all, no one in their right mind would, would do an anger after that. Or if you felt angry, you would learn how to handle that by pretending like you weren't angry. And, and then I had another reinforcement of that, which was my mother, who would constantly say things like, well, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And she would say, why can't you be like L.W.? And L.W. was this little turd who lived down the street. Uh, and L.W., L.W. set garages on fire, see? Uh, but mother, none of the adults ever saw L.W. Because when he got around the adults, he was this nice little kid who was sucking, you know. Uh. So mother would say, why can't you be nice like L.W.? Always saying, be nice. If you can't say something nice, don't say be nice. And see, being nice is, is one of the crazies in, in just normal people because uh, we have all been taught to do that. And so people, you know, you say, how are you? They're fine. You know, and it, the, the face looks like it because they're being nice. And uh, see, what, what I've learned from AA and in all the psychotherapy that I've done personally and with other people for 18 years has verified this, that the thing to be is honest. And being nice isn't always honest. The thing that creates trust in people is honesty. You see, because what happened to me, what happened to me is I came to a place where people accepted me 
whether I was nice or not, because some of the stories I was telling weren't too nice. And I told them about all my shit, as it were, and they still accepted me. They accepted me just the way I was. Now, they accepted me with honesty. They said, I think you're crazy, when they thought I was crazy. They said, you know, if you want a drink, if you're going to keep whining like this, why don't you go fry your brains? A uh, guy told me that in a club one time. I didn't think that was very nice. Uh, uh, people here are not always nice. They are honest, though. And so what happens is you begin to trust them. You ever been around a person who was just nice to everybody? You, you quit trusting them. Their, their compliments don't mean a damn thing. You know they're going to say it anyway. You may go to them first, uh, you know, for the compliment. But, uh, but, but uh, you know, what, what, is it, what does it mean? Because you know they're just going to say something nice. Are they going to tell you the truthful? See, the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. The truth will create trust. And trust is what creates love. See, and we get it just the opposite. I was brought up just the opposite. They said, act loving. But see, don't act loving if you don't feel loving. I wrote somebody a card in the airport today, and I got on the plane and said, I don't even like that person. What in the hell am I writing them a card for? Now, it happens to be the child of a celebrity. You know, so, you know, I don't have to say anymore. I'm writing the card for me, not for the kid. The card has nothing to do with the kid. The card has to do with me. It has to do with my ego. But, but it's a crazy act for me. And the more I go on in this program, the more I see that how it was was ego. How it was was ego. I lived constantly in this world of ego, which meant I lived in a world of being threatened all the time, of feeling scared, of being afraid. And, and of course, when you're scared and afraid all the time, the next obvious thing is to be lonely. Now, loneliness is a toxic state, and it's a chosen state, in my opinion. No one ever has to be lonely. We make ourselves lonely. When I was single and running around, I wouldn't go to uh, singles groups. I remember stopping myself. I was lonely. I'd say to everyone, God, I'm lonely. And someone would say, well, why don't you go to a, you know, there's this group meeting at St. Philip's Presbyterian. And I said, well, I'm not going there. And they'd say, well, why? And I'd say, well, I don't want them to know that I'm looking for a girl. Uh, you know, I don't want them to think that I'm in need and vulnerable and hurting. See, what would they say? And see, when you're threatened all the time, you live constantly from outer environment. That's the way I lived. Outer environment was always what I was trying to impress somebody. I constantly looked in mirrors to think of what people would think. See, there was no inner life at all. My whole life was a dependency on foreign management. Now, the foreign management wasn't just people and people's impression. It subsequently became booze and pills. That's another form of outer dependency. So I went from this not okay, anxiety-ridden, chronically fearful, lonely guy to use the chemicals. And boy, the first time I drank a beer, chug-a-lugged a beer, I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was like, God! Now I know what the old man has going for him. I mean, the anxiety just went zip, gone. Fear went boop, gone. I mean, this was magic. This was fire water. This was magic indeed. This took away all the pain. This was a, this was a medicine. And, and truly, alcohol is a medicine. The best sense of alcohol, thank you. The best sense of alcohol is that it's a medicine. 
It was used for medicinal purposes down through the centuries. It's a relaxant. It's a central nervous system depressant, but it relaxes people. It's been discovered that, that people who drink in moderation live longer. Now, you know, that'll blow us, most of us, out of the tube when I tell you what moderation is. It's like six ounces a week. Uh, I mean, that, that's utterly absurd. You know, you did that before you got dressed to go out, you know. Uh, so six ounces a week is, you know, good, moderate drinking. Well, see, I'm not even interested in drinking if you got a drink like that. Uh, you know, if anyone said, you can go back and we got this pill and you'll drink moderately, I'd just say, crap, I'm not even going to bother going through that. That isn't what I drank for. I drank because it took away all the pain. It gave me this false sense of confidence. It, it, it allowed me to think I was impressing people. Uh, you know, come to find out, I really wasn't. Uh, but I sure thought I was. And, and, and you know, I want to tell you a little metaphor because stories often just get the point so well. Just this idea of being otherated and constantly living by the impression, trying to make an impression. And I still do that. I don't want to tell you I don't do that. But I don't do it anything like I used to. And I have an inner life now, whereas I never had. I had no inner life at all. And that's why when I would go home and be alone, it's like panic would set in. The last bad drunk I was on was about 16 days holed up in an apartment. And I had four girls with me. Uh, and, and, and what they would tell me is that you just keep looking in the mirror. You go there and you look in the mirror. You know, like it was. I was trying to be sure I was there. I mean, it's the only thing I can figure out because... I was so empty inside, you see, that I had to see it on the outside, the mirror, combing your hair, how you look. Again, that's all the symptoms of, of the how it was. That's the symptoms of ego life, a way of life dominated by this small circle that I'll call ego. And you see, ego means that I am threatened and defensive all the time. When you're in ego, in that sense, you're in fight-flight. You're always in fight-flight. You're always either angry at somebody, fighting them because they're not going to get you what you want, or flighting them, withdrawing because of fear, withdrawing socially because of fear. Those are the only two choices when you stay in that. You know, and it's why I've come to see that, that AA is a way of life because that other is a way of life. That other is a way of life. And I'm talking more about the psychological because I had that other way of life before I started drinking at 13 or 14. Now, I was already blacking out at 14 and 15. I was having brain amnesia, going through long periods of time of remembering nothing. And these, these dudes that come along, these psychologists that are trying to get people to go, you know, saying at the end of alcoholism is to go back to social drinking. And several of them have done that. I mean, it's the craziest, sickest thing that, that they won't acknowledge that this is a physical, emotional, and spiritual illness and that it has this physical basis, this X-factor basis, and that anybody who's ever had brain amnesia, which is what a blackout is, now, it doesn't mean you're not alcoholic if you've never had one of those, because you can be alcoholic and not have brain amnesia. I blacked out on amphetamines. I, I blacked out on phenobarbital. Uh, I just didn't play any favorites. Uh, my body chemistry just doesn't handle chemicals uh, at all. It doesn't handle any chemicals. And uh, very early on, then, I was in trouble. And, uh, you know, the more I got into my teens and had some power, I got with guys. I ran with guys from broken homes. I, I broke out in acne and adolescence. That helped the self-worth and the self-esteem. 
you know, and, the, and of course, the, the obviously, when you're puberty, the thing you start thinking about is sex, and the other sex, or mostly the other sex, if you're uh, puberting. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> but, but, you know, to be already chronically not okay and lonely, and then to have acne. You know, I, I used to stand at the mirror and say to God, you really fucked up. <laughs> because I know a better place for this stuff than on my face. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't have a good relationship in those days. Uh, so. so I went through high school. I had brow, you know, brawls and drinking got in trouble. And then about 21, I decided I'd been raised by a very Catholic mother and family. And the, I, the nuns, part of their glory is to get a boy to go have a vocation, to go be a priest. And several nuns told me they thought I had a vocation. I don't know how they could have thought I had a vocation. But uh, I think they tell every young Catholic boy they think he has a vocation and hope for the numbers, uh, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, at 21, I, I very, I very, like I did everything else with great grandiosity, gave my life to God and went to a monastery in Rochester, New York. Now, I was already sick and tired of being sick and tired. By 21, I was already ready to give up booze, but hadn't acknowledged that I was an alcoholic. Uh, even though I'd seen my daddy, had never really been exposed to any good, you know, good information about alcoholism. But I, I was exhausted because part of this ego life is an inner warfare. A Saturday in that workshop, what I want to begin with is self-forgiveness. That's what you got to begin with because, you see, if you, if you feel not okay and inadequate, there's a warfare going on in there. We belittle ourselves. It's not that critical people are just judging other people and blaming other people. Anyone who's blaming is also blaming themselves. They have the same critical patterns going on inside. Now, to have those patterns going on inside is like to have a war going on inside. And my existence was what one guy, Alexander uh, Lowen, calls problematic. Everything was a problem. I'd get up in the morning and say, let's see, I ought to eat breakfast. Yeah, but I don't really feel like eating breakfast. But, but you should eat breakfast and, and uh, you know, should eat fiber. Uh, fiber's good for the cancer of the colon. And, uh, and I'd go through this long tirade. You know, by 9 o'clock, I'd be tired. I'd gone through this. And, and you do that all day long. I, I see my psychoneurotic clients. And they're tired, man. They sleep a lot. They want that Librium and Valium and Sectinol and Duinol and Nemutol and all that good stuff. Just to aid in sleep. Uh, because they're tired, this warfare inside. See, so how it was was terrible. It was a way of life characterized by fear and loneliness and warfare and using chemicals which momentarily anesthetized me so that I didn't have to think about any of that. And by 30, by 30, I had dealt with no emotions. And this is what really is the problem, in my opinion, is that as long as you drink and use the chemicals, there's no way to grow emotionally because you don't have to go through any emotions. And, and you know, like a lot of my uh, clients right now uh, do a lot of grass. And uh, although if I find out about it, you know, if it, it kind of casually comes up, you know, I'll say, here you've come to me and you've told me you're lonely. And you smoke a joint every time you go out. Now, how in the world can you expect not to be lonely? Because you go out, and you, so you got a date tonight. You're going out with this guy and you really want to go out with him. And you smoke a joint before you go out. And boy, you could, by the time you're out, man, you're feeling good. 
and uh, you're really smooth and you're funny and you you know you're really coming on he says god you're the most wonderful you're just unbelievable and he writes sends you a flower the next day and he writes you a little card and you somewhere in your unconscious though he doesn't know you what he knows is you in a joint so he doesn't know you so the fear is well what if i go out without a joint what if you do the same thing with booze the, the first slip i had was dating i went 40 days in the program then went out with a new woman and drank i'm not blaming it on the woman i'm blaming it on my fears and insecurities and, and the sense of inadequacy and the sense of dealing with those rough emotional feelings that go into intimacy see to get intimate with somebody you really get gutsy you really get down to that sort of gut level of, of sharing feelings well hell i didn't even know what i was feeling half the time i mean i'll give you a perfect example a year ago i walked home this is i'm 16 years sober uh I, my wife meets me at the door and she says honey the air conditioning is out now in july in houston texas for the air conditioning to be out that's big trouble it's probably big trouble here too uh, but now now here's what happened and i only understood this in hindsight i didn't understand it at the time but in hindsight i realized that i had a message in my head that my mama or somebody told me that real men are supposed to know how to fix mechanical things okay i don't know doodly squat about mechanical things uh when my car broke down, used to break down, if there was a girl around, I'd open the hood and take out the dipstick. Uh, and if there's no girl around, then screw it. I didn't, didn't try. So, uh, I know nothing about cars. They drive me insane. But I got this message in my head from my mother that says, real men are supposed to know how to fix mechanical things. My wife tells me the air conditioning's out. I don't even know where our air conditioner is. Now, so I'm standing there, and I, what I'm actually feeling is fear. Fear, because I don't know where it is, and I don't know how to fix it, okay? And uh, also, I'm the man, and men are supposed to be strong, okay? And here's my wife saying, hey, the air conditioner's out. So if I were going to tell, if I were going to be honest, if I were going to gut it out, but see, I'm not even aware of this at the time. I, I missed this completely out of years of learning to repress emotions. Because the way you stop yourself from feeling is by tensing muscles. Uh, the, the body therapist in this culture, uh, if you ever hang around with a body therapist, they'll stand there and they'll say, there goes a locked pelvis, there goes a locked pelvis, there goes a locked pelvis. And uh, locked pelvis is a tight asshole, is what that really means. So, uh, if a person walking around, because these muscles, these muscles in here are the first ones that get repressed. You understand? These are the ones you can't feel. And everybody, you know, I, I would imagine, unless you had some extraordinary family where, you know, they were saying, oh, did you have an erection today, Ronnie? You know, and, uh, good boy, you know. You know, I just can't imagine anything like that. What, what, what most of us got, and, and by the way, I think that's what, you know, that repression there is also why sex, although not enough talked about in my, my for my books, in meetings, uh, is a big factor uh, because it's a compulsive kind of quality and it has the quality of uh, that compulsivity and grandiosity it also has the quality of orgasm being something that takes you out of control and there's a lot of data about people with 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 chemical problems not really enjoying sex there's data that we do it a lot and want it a lot but we don't know how to handle it for example uh, the Kundalini Yoga people tell you that if you know how to breathe in your abdomen, you can prolong an orgasm like on a joint. 
And uh, that, that because most people, when they're having an orgasm, don't even feel. They stop breathing. Now, I haven't run around and done a survey on this. Uh, are you breathing? You know, uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's a lot of data to support that. But you see, once, once, once a feeling is not prohibited, now, now I can imagine a drama of a little kid, you know, finding a part of his body and everybody going out of their gourd. You know, little Farquhar found his arm. And so here's his little two-year-old going, arm, and his grandmother freaks out and, and takes him over to her neighbors and says, tell Shirley where your arm is. And the little dude goes, arm. See, and man, he is proud. Boy, this is great. All I got to do is point to your arm and it blows him away. Okay? And then one day he finds something else. He finds his ear, and boy, that gets them. They love that. He, he says, ear, and everybody grins. We see a day is coming. And this is going to be really something. Because here's this little magical, non-logical kid who's walking in, and man, he's been knocking them dead with arms and ears. And what he's found got those two things hands down. And he goes in there and shows off his genitals, and everybody looks away. Now, you think that isn't confusing? To a little person that doesn't know anything about the world and only has this body and is experiencing this body and it feels good, and suddenly all the big giants are either turning away or ushering him out of the room and saying, we don't talk about that, and, and you know, uh, that is not polite, it's not socially acceptable, and he sees that big giant's mouth all screwed up, and he goes, wow! Boy, you better not feel anything like that around here. See, and that's happened by about two or three. So how do you stop yourself from sexual feelings? By muscle tension, pelvis, locking the pelvis. You can stop those feelings so much that you're even numb, so that you don't even feel them anymore. And over years and years and years of hard work at it, many people have blocked off all those feelings. It's phenomenal to me that the two most important feelings, the feeling that ensures the species, sexual, the sexual feelings, that allow the species to go on, and the feeling that ensures individual self-preservation, anger. You've taken my money, I fight you for it. You annihilate my self-esteem, I stand up and be assertive for it. See, anger is an appropriate emotion. It allows you to get needs met, it has energy in it. Those two feelings are absolutely denied. Isn't that crazy? See, so we're not the only ones crazy in this culture, by the way, out of drinking, drinking addicts. In fact, I wish 90% of my clients had a drinking problem. It'd be so much easier to work with them because they've got all the other stuff, but without the drama of what the chemicals do to you. The chemicals, for better or for worse, reduce that ego fast. And if you have a lot of the chemistry with it, then the blessing is, although some of you sitting here tonight may not see it as a blessing, but I think a day will come when you will see it as a blessing. You will see, especially the youngest ones here. I, I was just in Los Angeles preaching to the Padap banquet preaching because that's what I was doing uh, but uh, but I was talking about what those kids know what they already know at 16 and 20 and 25 that are going to take some people whole lifetimes to discover in terms of wisdom that that the only way to find your life is to lose it the only way to find the big consciousness the big the big frame the big black frame of consciousness is to lose that little pinpoint of ego you have to have that ego devastated and that's what happened to me 
That's what happened. I got that ego devastated because when I went to that seminary, I wasn't drinking for a couple of years, but I was still cr crazy in a lot of ways. I was withdrawing from the world. And I'm not saying every Catholic priest is doing that or every minister is doing that. I was. The, the seminary was a refuge for me. It was a way out of having to deal with girls. I just took a vow of celibacy. Never have sex for the rest of your life. That's one way around it. It's a stupid one, in my opinion, but... Uh, uh, and I hope there's a God in the heaven who has chalked up all those years of celibacy for me. You know, the only way I still hope that God's a great scorekeeper. I want some score marked up for me for that. Uh, but I went in there, and, 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 and the noble part of me, the spiritual part of me, and by the way, I think that anyone that uses drugs or chemicals or alcohol, there is something spiritual in you. There's a hunger in you that's spiritual. I believe this from the bottom of my heart, that my using of drugs was a way to try to meet a spiritual hunger that somehow my religious education and even those years in the seminary did not meet. I couldn't get it fulfilled. I couldn't find a community of people. See, I went to a teaching community like the Jesuits, and I said, won't this be great? A bunch of human beings who have dedicated their life to God and, and who are all pursuing the highest kinds of spiritual goals intellectual and spirituality and godlikeness and, and, and growing and meditating. For me, it wasn't that at all. It was a place where it wound up being a lot of ego and a lot of backbiting and a lot of politics. And, of course, we've got that everywhere. I'm wiser now because I'm older. I was a young man, and I was very idealistic. I was in my quest for the Holy Grail, and I didn't find it. But I think every man and every woman goes through that. You go through a first Grail quest. But for me, it wasn't there. Where I found what more of what I was looking for is in here, was in here. That what I found is that there was anonymity here, and that is a spiritual principle. I found that I could come in here with my, well, you know, my ego wasn't totally denigrated when I came in here. I made it for 40 days, and I started drinking again. Then I got in big trouble. I wound up in a paddy wagon in Milwaukee. Uh, I don't know how I did it, you know, some of these deals, but, you know, you all, some of you probably can top them. Uh, and I don't want to do a drunker log. It's funny, my story has changed so much over 17 years. For example, 17 years ago, I used to say I trudged nine miles in the snow to get the whiskey when I was in the monastery. It was actually two blocks, you know. But see, it just sounds so much better to say nine miles. Uh, and uh, that, that's the grandiosity. The grandiosity, all or nothing, big, impress them, man. You know, don't tell them some little thing, blow them away. And uh, the drunkologues have that quality to them. And it seems to me as people get sober, those, those parts of the story begin to diminish, and you hear them talking more about other things. At least that's been my experience. That I don't hold on to those stories anymore like I used to. Oh, I was going to tell you the metaphor of trying to impress somebody. Uh, when I was in the seminary, I was home on leave, and... And I had my old drinking buddies call me, and I hadn't had anything to drink in a couple of years. And uh, we were all going fishing together, which I knew was not a fishing trip. They told their wives they were going out with the seminarian. And uh, anyway, by 9 o'clock in the morning, we were in Kima, Texas, and I decided I wanted to impress this waitress. So the way I was going to impress her was to tell her to bring schooners of beer to our table, just to fill up trays with it as fast as she could. And just not stop until we told her to. And, of course, we chug-a-lug 14 beers. And, you know, by 9.45, we'd chug-a-lug 14 or 15 beers. And, uh, I mean, I was blacked out by 10.30. This was a real fun day. 
uh, I was blacked out by 10.30. But the thing that always comes back to me, uh, Augustine in his Confessions wrote about stealing pears from a neighbor's pear tree and how, how useless it was. And, and that's what always comes back to me about this, you know, when I think about that. I wound up in a hospital, in St. Mary's Hospital. They found me in a pool of blood uh, on Post Office Street, the famous Post Office Street in Galveston, Texas, the whorehouses. And I was in a black collar and cassock, and I mean, I wasn't wearing it then, but uh, I was a seminarian, and this thing hit the front page of the paper, although one of my buddies talked them out of telling them where they found me. But, but that was all to impress that waitress. Now, that is so, to, to be so empty inside that my whole life is geared by what's out there trying to impress people and, and how we relinquish our soul, how I relinquished my soul and my spirit by doing that. And so what I, what I finally did when I wound up, I got out of the seminary finally after really doing about three scandals, and I was very smart. I was a valedictorian in my class, and so they kept me on. I was like, you know, people who, who are padded in their alcoholism. They kept saying, but he's so smart, see, uh, we'll give him another chance. And I was a con, and I had some of the top people in the community conned. And, of course, deep down, I didn't even want to be there anymore. I was just too scared to leave. When I finally left, I was 30 and a half years old. I'd been in there since I was 21, so I was in that monastery nine years. Now, I'm not going to, I, I can tell you a bunch of stories about mass wine and the wine cellar, and, and I got into Secondall and Tuanall and Doradon. Uh, I got to be the infirmarian, the guy that takes care of all the medication. Uh, and, uh, and after I got out of seminary, I became a drug salesman, formally a drug salesman. I don't mean an illegal drug salesman. I mean I worked for Lakeside Laboratories. And drug salesmen in, in those days had elaborate systems of exchange. Like I would go to the Lily guy, who, or the Smith, Klein, and French guy. Oh, those were the good guys, and people just courted those guys. And and I would trade them off our iron supplement for. Like I remember being out with this poor girl one night, and I went by the the Massengale guy's house. Now they make douche powder, but that but they also make a, a diet pill, a weight reducing pill that has amphetamine and phenobarbital in it. And oh God, it's a dandy. I mean, it's a, it's a real little hummer. Uh, and uh, I got 400,000 pills from this guy. 400,000! I traded him for some of my stuff. And this poor girl, I'm hauling the stuff to the car. And she is going, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just picking up a few little incidentals for, you know, for the weeks to come. And uh, I blacked out on those pills terribly. And uh, anyway, I went to AA finally and stayed in AA, graduated from AA, got messed up, went back to AA, graduated again, and my PhD was Austin State Hospital. So somehow it took me 14 months to make the program when I was standing there in size 48 pants, barefooted in the state hospital, and the doctor said to me, what do you want to do? Do you want to go into psychoanalysis? Do you want to go into encounter groups? Do you want to stay in the state hospital? I said, I want to go to AA, because I knew all along. I knew all along that it would work. It's just that I wouldn't let it work. What I kept trying to do is improve on the program, and that's part of the sickness. See, we try to find an easier way. And, and, and when I was standing there, I was in this R&I Ward 8, and there were about 11 people in this little tiny ward. And boy, you know, keep it simple, stupid comes back to you there a lot. Uh, you know, that, that God, don't try to intellectualize this, John. Look at what doing it your way got you. I mean, that's, that's what, and I said, you know, a sick mind can't fix itself. Now, my mind is not sick in book learning. 
because I could teach courses in the university and was voted the most popular professor many times. I mean, sick as hell, eating pills and drinking. It isn't that kind of thinking that, that the bruise messes up. It's the practical thinking. It's relational thinking. It's emotional thinking. And when, when my life has become unmanageable, way. 
I was using that power that I had to manipulate the world, to impress the world. And that takes a lot of energy. You see, if I have to manipulate you, if I have to control all of you, oh, God, is that going to take energy to try to control all of you. Now, I can try to control all of you by being a, a persecuting son of a bitch, or I can control all of you by being a victim who can't do anything, really. You'll have to make all the decisions, Ralph. Uh, boy, the first time Ralph fucks up, he's going to really get it from her. Yeah. Why did you decide that? Uh, you know, and, and so victims, see, are not victims, man. Don't be conned. There is hidden power in depression. There is hidden power in melancholia. There is hidden power in victims. There is hidden power in being stupid. See, because then you don't ever have to make any decisions. I don't know. Don't ask me. Man. I may start hyperventilating if you ask me to do that. So, so that, 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 see, we always had the power. How it was is I had all this power, but I wasted it. It was wasted energy. It all was internal. I was criticizing myself and condemning myself, and all that energy and power was going on in here. And you might not even see it. I might be just looking at you, and it didn't look like I was even moving. But there was all kind of power going on in here and violence. You see, and, and it's, the, it's what failure is about. Failure has just as much energy in it as success. You can make yourself happy or miserable. The amount of work is exactly the same. The demonic is the goodest turned upside down. The corruption of the highest good is the greatest evil. It's always your strength gone awry that is the demonic, that causes the demonic in our lives. And, and, and that living hell that I was in, that demonic place that I was, that sinful place that I was, you see, has all that same energy is now turned into grace. All that same energy, not all of it's into grace, uh, but a, a lot of that same energy is turned into grace. A lot of that energy is now, okay, I like to be on stage, but I do it in effective ways. Uh, I, I am a caring father. I have three children, and I put energy into loving them. My son will never see me drink one day at a time. God help me. I've broken a pattern. My daddy was an alcoholic. His daddy was an alcoholic. There were five generations of alcoholics. I can take the same energy and make mental health a business. I can become obsessed with sobriety. You understand that the same energy that can be demonic now gets transferred, transformed into sobriety. And so how it is now, it's just magnificent. I have not been depressed for 17 years. I have not had a conscious desire to drink for 17 years. That's unbelievable to me. I can't believe this kind of time has passed one day at a time following this simple program. I've learned all the psychologies because I do, 40 hours of psychotherapy. I give lectures different places. But I promise you that we have here in the 12 steps something utterly fantastic. Something that, that every year of my life I've begun to see that what all of life is about is addiction. Uh, I had to deal with the addiction of sensation. That I was addicted to excitement. And still am, but there's a healthy way to do Affairs are a sick way to do it. A healthy way to do it is to come to Phoenix and do workshops. That's exciting. See, screwing a new woman every two months is exciting too. But that's an abortive use of that energy. I had to deal with the demon, the addiction of money. And 
I've not met an addict yet who didn't have a problem at some level with this. Either, oh, I see a lot of faces, either the, the, of grandiosity, of spending what you don't got, of living in unreality, getting those charge cards, man, uh, or, or the other side, which is hoarding. Man, some recovered alcoholics are the stingiest people who ever walked down the pike. Uh, <laughs> you can't get a nickel out of them, and yet drinking, they were setting the bar up. You know, paying for everybody's drinks. The, the addiction to power, uh, to money, was also the addiction to power and control. And, and what's been fascinating to me is that I've had to come back and say I'm powerless over sex and my life has become unmanageable and work through that with the steps. I did that over a five-year period. I'm powerless over money and my life's become unmanageable. I had to work through the steps with that. And you see, what kept me sober 18 years ago will not keep me sober tonight. It's not enough for me just to say I won't take a drink today. What I have to say today is, have I done my meditation? And now I'm into higher consciousness meditation. And that has been one of the most wonderful, thrilling things for my whole life. That for, for the last two years, about 25 to 30 minutes a day, I go into another brainwave state and seek through prayer and meditation to increase my conscious contact with God. And unbelievable things have happened to me since I started doing that. I have found in the psychology that goes along with this that, that now the science and the religion have come together that what AA's got in the 12 steps came from Frank Buckner, the Presbyterian minister in the Oxford movement, and, that the, and from Emmett Fox, the Sermon on the Mount, that we've put it together in our own unique way. But it is deeply, it, it hones into the perennial wisdom of all the spiritual traditions. Now, if you don't like that, fine. You know as well as I do, you take what you like, you take what's meaningful to you. If you're not dealing with meditation, don't worry about that. If you haven't taken a fourth step yet, don't worry about meditation. I, I recommend taking a fourth step first. You know, what, what I used to do is wax eloquent on steps I'd never taken. Uh, and, and, and all those slipping and sliding years, uh, one of the things I decided when I came back to AA is bullshit. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to sit here and talk about how I took the seventh step when I didn't take it or what the seventh step means to me and I didn't ever do it. And, and that, that's bullshit. That's that grandiosity again. That's that sick ego. Not being willing to sit in that group and say, I haven't taken it. And haven't everybody look at you. Oh, you've been around 81 years and you haven't taken those steps yet, you know. Or, but I mean, I know guys in the program that don't do any of that and are sober. So each one has to work this program their own way. That's what's beautiful about it. But now I'm beginning to realize, see, the data, the scientific data is saying that all consciousness is connected. And that when you can get out of that little ego into that full consciousness, we have a connection with all consciousness, all human consciousness. So there is a sense in which all of us know that stuff happens in AA that is beyond anybody's logic. Uh, you know, I was telling the story about the, the guy that was at Crossroads. What was his name again? Little... Remember the little guy, that the, the, the Padap, little Jack, the Padap guy's going to Los Angeles and sees this pile of dust out in the field? And it's little Jack who has wandered out there after a marijuana, is little Jack here, by the way, uh, a, a marijuana night. This guy sees him, he's got a great big sweatshirt on that says, uh, try sobriety, it's the real thing. <laughs> Jack is out in the middle of nowhere in West Texas. And this guy, just out of curiosity, doesn't even know it's a human farm turns the car around and walks back, and Jack is praying at this moment, saying, God, get me out of this. I don't know what to do. I'm nothing. I'm dung. I'm a man, you know, a worm and no man. And he looks up, and there's this six-foot guy from Padap, and it says, try sobriety. It's the real thing. 
And that sends chills down my back. When Bill told me that story, it sent chills down my back. Because every one of you has a story like that. You see, and what, what happened to us all is a person. A person happened to us all. Somebody came to you, and somebody came to me. And why did they come right at the time? Why did I have the one who came to me? It was just the right one for me. And I had to choose to go with it. But think about your lives. Think about that right now. Who was it? And see, who are you going to be the condition of salvation for? Uh, you're the only book somebody's going to ever read. You see, and when anyone anywhere holds out their hand, we want the hand of AA to be there. We have strength tonight in this unity. There is a collective consciousness here that's greater than any single person, and we all know that. I never found this anyplace else where you could really have anonymity. See, anonymity means nobody's better than anybody else. We're all, we're all recovering addicts. We come and share our experience. We're all sinners. And we all know it, and we all acknowledge it. And you go to a church and see how much sin is being acknowledged. And, and I don't mean to just indict all the churches, but I'm afraid that I didn't go to church and find brothers and sisters that I could share masturbation with, say. <laughs> you know, if you walk up to church Sunday, the Methodist church said, do you have any trouble with masturbation? To, uh, Masturbation's a big issue for a lot of people. You wouldn't dare say that at church. You see, see, there's something wrong with that. I'm a theologian. I'm trying to bring this back into the, the confessing church where sinners meet each other. It's not a church for the saved. We, the saved don't need anybody. They're saved. It, the, the, the deal is for the sinners. And that's what we got here. We got a place we can come where we can share experience, strength, hope. And I've been to AA all over this country, and it's just fantastic. It's just fantastic to be able to walk into meetings anywhere in Las Vegas and Reno and go to AA meetings and feel more comfortable than any place in my life. Because even when I'm bullshitting, I know that you know. See? I mean, and, and you kind of tolerate it. Uh, but I know you know. And, and yet we're kind of gentle with each other sometimes. And when you get a lot of sobriety, people are gentler with you uh, uh, for some reason. Uh, but but it's, it's a wonderful thing. This collective consciousness, I really believe, and all the scientific data says, that there is a mind that when you get out of that little pinpoint ego, you enter into higher consciousness. You enter into a collective power, a higher power, a higher power than any of us could have dreamed of. And because it's a, it's a consciousness, and because consciousness controls matter, it'll get things for you, like money when you need it, like friends when you need them, like a place to go when you need it. And every one of you, if you think back on your life, I bet you can find something that's kind of eerie eerie. Last year, when I came here to Phoenix to do the talk, Bill had suggested that I do it on the Phoenix bird, rising out of the ashes. Of course, we didn't prepare for crosswords to burn down uh, and rise out of the ashes. But, but, but I, I, I hadn't done my homework. I hadn't read up the mythology of the Phoenix bird. I was doing a newspaper interview, doing a lot of meditating, turning it over to higher consciousness. I get in the car, and sitting next to me is a book on mythology. I asked the woman, where did that come from? She said, oh, I borrowed it from a girl about two months ago. I opened the book up to the phoenix bird. And that's eerie. And, and it's so, that happened so much. So that as we come to the 10th, 11th, 12th step, as we seek through higher, to this higher consciousness, this spiritual awakening, that's where I am at now. That's all that matters, really, in my life, is to keep this contact. I shouldn't say all. I fall out of it all the time, like playing slot machines. Uh, 
But 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 I get back and do my meditation. I know where to go back. And the kingdom of heaven is within. The kingdom of heaven is within. Well, how it is now is I have an inner life, an inner life, and a peace. And there's nothing out there that can assail me, because there's a knowledge that comes from that sought through prayer and meditation that you cannot get from the outside. It is not possible. There isn't all the seeking on the outside will never get you this, and it's an assurance and a strength. And I guarantee you, go read those promises in the big book. And, and, and as you get into that meditation, watch it happen as you, as you hit this spiritual awakening promise by these steps. So for those of you that are young here tonight, we need you desperately, but remember there's something really beautiful in store for you. For all of us, it's a journey. I appreciate you letting me share with you. I appreciate your respect. It, 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 it's awesome to me at times. Uh, I, I appreciate this program. It's taught me that discipline is important, that persons are important, that there is no freedom without discipline. You've got to, you know, control that ego, that self-will run riot. You've got to get into that higher consciousness. And I believe that the strength we have, there are people dying out there tonight. There are kids out there dying of drug addiction. There are hundreds of alcoholics messed up, sick in their own jails. I saw them all over Reno. God, it just, it just do things to my stomach. I was playing the slot machines till 4 o'clock last night, just watching drunks on the street and just you know there but for the grace of god go i and why me lord why any of us in this room tonight i think it's a grace there's no one of my brothers i can do without the heart of the meanest miser the most squalid prostitute there is an immortal soul with holy aspirations which deprived of daylight worships in the night they're calling to us they need us if no one had come to me you see so tonight i want you just to maybe think about holding your hand out that you are going to be the condition of salvation for someone else it's unbelievable to me that i was this sick man 18 years ago see i'm bumping it up 17 years three months and nine days ago uh that i was this sick the old ego surges in there i was a sick man and that here i am i probably worked with a hundred people this year with with alcoholism i mean that's unbelievable and that bill w and dr bob turned to each other and here's this incredible miracle that's happened so I am so grateful to be here, and I'm so grateful that you are here, and I love you all, and God bless you all.